Newsmakers is a production of Wisconsin Eye. To keep programs like this free and accessible to all, please consider a charitable gift to wisi.org slash donate or text WISI to 44321. This program is brought to you from Wisconsin Eye's Margaret Farrow Studio. Hello and welcome to Newsmakers. I'm your host, Lisa Pugh. This is a special Newsmakers series featuring interviews with state Supreme Court candidates. The primary election is set for February 21st, general election April 4th, and today we are sitting down with Judge Everett Mitchell. Thank you for joining Wisconsin Eye. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So Wisconsin Eye is built on a premise of inspiring civil dialogue, civic participation. With that in mind, why are you running for state Supreme Court? Well, I firmly believe that our state deserves a justice that reflects the diversity and ideas of our entire state. That too often I believe that justice is not just what you say, justice is what you do. So I want to be able to bring Wisconsin with a choice, a choice that is based both in someone who understands the rule of law, who's made decisions, who's been independent in my judicial work, but also has an experience and leadership to make sure that we transform the judiciary so that it actually meets the needs of those in our community, so that we can make sure that our systems are both fair, balanced, and justice, and we give our Wisconsinites a choice a choice that moves our state forward rather than keeps us recycling the same narratives of the past. So the court is currently considered to have a four to three conservative majority and many think this election will determine the ideological balance of the court. Do you agree with that and do you think ideological balance is important? Yeah, I think, you know, right now you have, uh, you know, what we consider to be four or three conservative leaning right now. So. And all that means for Wisconsin voters, it just means the ideology toward how they view cases will be more, you know, probably more centered on certain other values. So when you have a 4-3 liberal, which is what we're aiming for with this seat, it really is not to say that it should be partisanship. It just means people have a particular perspective of how they both view the Constitution, the role of the Constitution, and whether or not that Constitution be viewed from more of a kind of a stagnant uh, originalist perspective or more toward a kind of living document that really addresses the, the kind of future needs that we have uh, in society. So uh, the Supreme Court races are considered to be nonpartisan, as you mentioned, and but there is this perceived ideological balance. How would you describe your own judicial identity? Do you identify as a liberal? I really identify my view as a living, you know, interpreter of the Constitution. So I kind of see the Constitution really as a balance of both originalist and living document because you really do need to be able to go back to the original intent. So when you think about you know, Brown versus Board of Education and how it was overturned and how the NAACP used their arguments around the 14th Amendment, they always went back to the original intent to talk about equal process, equal protections, and due process of the law. So they focused on the original intent, but then they used it to say we should apply this to this particular factual situation that allows for us to fight for desegregation of schools. So for me, I think it's a balance of both. You both have to understand the original intent, but you also have to be willing to say, okay, now how does this particular law, particular amendment, focus on the facts that are being brought before us? And if it is 
in such that we need to be able to use the rule of law for that, then we use it to make the kind of adjustment to our society and more importantly to the laws that uh, our citizens and our community, and more importantly our Wisconsinites, will be able to use to be able to enforce their rights. You have been embraced by liberals and progressives in this race. How do you assure voters that you will not um, contribute to the partisan divide that we have in this state? Well, you know, I I think um, I think you know, you know if you have too many right wings and left wings, the bird can't fly, democracy can't fly. You need balance, and I think that's what my philosophy has always been is about bringing that sense of balance. You know, there are times when, as a you know, as a circuit court judge, which I, I you know, I admit that is different than appellate and Supreme Court, but as circuit court judge, you sometimes often asked to make decisions. And just because you are friends with someone, just because you may be aligned politically with someone, doesn't necessarily mean that the facts and the rule of law line up with the case that's in front of you. Now, I've had to make some decisions with people I admire in the legal community and respect highly for the work that they have done, but they may bring a case that's not necessarily the case uh, that is going to win the day. And so I've had to rule you know, against those individuals, even though I have great respect for their beliefs and the ways in which that they see the world and the way that they live out their, their belief system. But for me, it's about, it's about independence. You must have a, a level of independence that allows for you to, to move with the facts and understand that everybody should have a fair shot and you should have no predetermined. Everybody's going to come and say, oh, we're going to be neutral, we're going to be impartial. But they have to be able to demonstrate that in real time. And I think I'm the one of the few candidates who can actually give articulated examples of moments where I may not agree, uh, may be aligned with them politically, but that doesn't mean that I need to make a decision or work hard to make a decision for them just because we're aligned politically. What is the specific example of that? Well, I had a case where uh, with Scott Walker, uh, an employment case with Scott Walker, and so we had a, a situation where I think it, the one of his former employees was suing the administration, and it was an administrative question whether or not, you know, we should be able to override the administrative review process in order to give him the result that he was looking for. Well, in the end, that didn't work. And so, even though he was represented by someone I highly respect, you know, I had to rule in favor of the Walker administration because that's what the rule of law really required at that time. So uh, after this election, some of the cases coming before the court that are expected to come before the court related to it will be related to abortion policy, legislative redistricting, election administration. Some of these considered to be pretty contentious issues. Would you agree those are probably the key contentious issues that might become before the court? I think that plus a lot of different things. I think there's going to be a lot of decisions that will come from the states, from the United States Supreme Court, because their block is sending back a lot of different conversations back to the state courts. So whether whether realigning, you know, redlining maps, addressing, you know, reproductive choice, I still think we have to pay attention to our indigenous community, the Indian Child Welfare Act. That case is before the Supreme Court, and then we have the decisions whether or not the Supreme Court will accept this independent state legislature theory where those independent legislatures will be to have the ones who have con exclusive control over voting rights in their states and not allow for their courts to be able to give review of those state decisions. I think all of those, all of those things are you know, going to be pushed back to the states for us to begin to wrestle uh, with those, those, those kind of decisions. And if the legislature and the executive branches are not able to come to some agreement as to what the statutes, it puts the Supreme Court in the awkward position of trying to legislate, which is not the role of the, the third branch of government. You know, we're supposed to make sure that we're checking constitutional values and statutory as well, but definitely not in the business of trying to legislate, you know, from the bench. On the issue of abortion policy, 
Uh, do you think the U.S. Supreme Court got it right by sending abortion policy back to states for debate? No, I don't. I, th I think, you know, Alito's, uh, you know, opinion was meant to try to say that, hey, we, we did not find a right of privacy within, you know, the 14th Amendment. But understand that that idea of privacy was the first time that, the, you know, our society had sat on a right for a long time. And it was the first time the Supreme Court went in and took a right away. And that's different than, like, say, when they overturned, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson, when the whole society had moved away from this idea that separate but equal was okay. Whereas this was a situation where society had moved to come to accept the fact that reproductive choice was something that, as a whole, society was okay with, because everybody wanted to at least have reproductive choice. You can disagree with that in your own personal life, but a personal right that people have, that's not something we reach in and take away. It'd be, you know, akin to, you know, Supreme Court coming in and taking away, you know, people's Second Amendment rights. We don't, we, the whole country would go up in an uproar, but you take a woman, uh, uh, the right of a woman to be able to make her own choice, and then that seems acceptable. No, it's not acceptable. That decision was based on total judicial activism versus being able to actually following the, both the will of the people, but also what I think the Constitution uh, mandates for us to be able to protect. So if elected and in your understanding of the law, how should Wisconsin move forward on the abortion issue? I think we should make sure that the legislature and executive branches have good conversations and that the voters should be able to, be, to decide what is it that they want to see for their state, especially when it comes to reproductive choice. Reproductive choice, reproductive justice, all of the different pieces that our legislature really has to begin to have a conversation with. And I think voters will begin to make those choices. Does that re mean you support a referendum or what? how can we um, encourage the legislature to take that up? Uh, well, I think I think voters have to begin to really have a conversation. I don't know if it's a referendum or if it's just, you know, you know, taking them to the ballot and making a decision about this choice. And I think once you start, once we get something to respond to, I think the voters will uh, begin to respond. I think right now it's just so open in the air that nobody really knows what to respond to. And everybody's trying to figure out, well, what, you know, what is the basics so we can know in what direction to either advocate for or to say this is a good compromise. This past fall, uh, Wisconsin voters elected a Democratic governor, a Republican U.S. senator. Uh, the GOP gained seats in the Assembly and the Senate in the state legislature. Some say that's evidence of gerrymandering. The current maps, the state Supreme Court used a least change approach. Was that the right approach? Least changes? Well, obviously, the least change approach was not something that we found both in the Constitution or statute. That was a whole new language. I mean, there are other standards to, to measure partisanship uh, in order to assess whether or not, you know, the particular maps were drawn in such a way that people, you know, didn't lose, they didn't necessarily lose their vote, but they lost their voice. And I think these particular maps have been, have been constructed in such a way where those individuals who formerly thought that they had a voice felt their voice. And I think this last election cycle, and the reason why this is really coming up for a lot of Wisconsin voters, when I traveled up north and different western parts, uh, northern, northeastern parts of the state, they didn't really get the feeling of what these maps would look like until they were running for their races. 
and they realized then how they were redrawn really did take their voices out of those communities at the same time. So I think the, re the passion that we're feeling for this is because now all Wisconsin voters, it's not just, you know, you know, shutting down ballot boxes or having somebody on election commission brag about the fact that, you know, they were able to stop 37,000 votes out of Milwaukee. But now it is a conversation that the entire state is having, you know, whether you, you know, black, white, rural, indigenous, Latino, you're feeling the weight of that shift and that shift itself is what is is what you know making people say well can, you know what is the answer for this if it's not legislative then it must be in the courts so you would hope the maps would come back before the state supreme court that they're not fair i would say that maps uh, that are drawn to limit both the voice and the vote of people are never fair and that's not something that's unique to me supreme courts have said you know certain maps are not fair and they have them redrawn and I think we have a unique opportunity in Wisconsin to, to think about the ways in which we want maps to be drawn. It should be legislative. It should not come to the courts. But the courts are the ones who have to answer the bigger constitutional questions about access and voices in our community. Uh, the court is likely to also hear cases on the environment. Uh, it, can you point to any sort of important case law that might outline how you would look at balancing government regulation against the interests of business and consumers in an environmental case? I think a lot of times the, you know, uh, I don't have a specific environmental case because that's not, you don't always see environmental cases here, but we do see a lot of cases kind of historically where you're looking at the ways in which government regulation can sometimes you know, limit and hurt land use. So how do we respect land use and how do we make sure land use is still, you know, um, applicable for how you know, people want to be able to use the land and make sure we have clean water and make sure the things that we're looking for in the land are taken care of. I do know, you know, in, a native, in our native indigenous communities, we talk about the DNR and the wolf hunting opportunities and, you know, regulating wolf hunting and how the, you know, both the government and those tribal communities tried to, in the past, work together, but sometimes those tribal tra traditions rub against those governmental uh, requirements and allowing people to do, like, wolf hunt. So how do we find a space of compromise? If there cannot be no compromise, how do we resolve those conflicts legally? How would you describe your judicial philosophy? I think we talk a little bit about it, but you know, I'm a, I'm a balance between originalist and a living document approach. So I've always thought about, you know, judicial work that we do is about creating that balance. And for me, I want to make sure that anybody who comes before me, that we're treating them fairly. I believe a judge has to always be curious, that we should never have our minds made up when we take the bench. We should both either, either we listen to live facts like circuit court judges do, or we're looking at facts through a brief, which a lot of appellate and, you know, Supreme Court will do. Either one, those facts, or you, you need to remain curious because you don't want to make your mind up until you've heard all of the facts. And that's why a lot of judges will tell you, I'll be fair, I'll be impartial, because you don't know all the facts. And you can't make a decision until you've heard ev all the piece of evidence being introduced so you can make a decision. But I've always leaned toward, if I have to answer a big constitutional question, to think about the implications that this particular rule will have uh, on the everyday lives of people. Uh, state Supreme Court justices are many things, but with things for sure, they are for sure writers. Is there a judicial writer who you admire, who you look to as uh, somebody you like to emulate? So Justice, you know, so I would say one of my f mentors is Justice Shirley Abrahamson. I don't know if you have time for me to tell you a quick story, do you? You, go ahead. So I remember when I was a young judge and I was pushing for, you know, take handcuffs off for kids. And it was a lot of tension in that space because a lot of people, that wasn't something that we had done. 
And so they had needed a volunteer to take Justice Abrahamson from a judicial uh, college education back down to Madison. And so I was going back home. And so I got in the car and I'm like, I'm driving Justice Abrahamson. We driving back to Madison. And I'm, I'm just like venting like, oh, I'm just frustrated. I'm, I'm mad. I'm angry. I'm trying to get this done. It needs to be fair. It's not fair. And I want to give up. How do I want to keep going? And she leaned over and grabbed my hand. She touched it. And she said, what do you think it was like being a short Jewish woman running against old men? She said, that's why we fight. We don't give up. And so over the years after that experience, I've always looked at her writings as both a way to talk about the law, but also thinking about the implications of the law for people's lives. And she has always been that, she was always that balance for me in how I read her decisions and how I took her approach when I got ready to do decisions or like, for example, one thing she kind of talked about was writing decisions, the importance of writing decisions. So for me, a lot of circuit court judges may do oral arguments, but I choose to do written decisions so that people can understand my rationale, how I understood the facts, how I understood the rule of law, and I honor them by making sure my decisions are written for them. Elected officials sometimes end up changing their views on important issues over time. They might be influenced by polling or maybe personal experience. Can you share an example of a time where you've changed your view on an important issue? Well, you know, you know, one of the things I always keep myself open to is change. I think one, I'm also a pastor, and so one of the things that I really change my views on is how we, how the our denomination focuses on LGBTQ uh, siblings in our community. And so, you know, when I married a same-sex couple in my church, it really was me saying that we can no longer sit on the sidelines and think that oppressing those within our community is justifiable and right. And so I made that move to being able to support our community that way. Those kind of movements are the kind of movements that should be led from heart and understanding that as our society moves, we should also be willing to, you know, let our ideologies move as well. What sets you apart from the other candidates in this race? I think the biggest thing that separates is uh, leadership. And I think the things that I have done in the community, because my old mentor always said the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And so you should know the values that I've done based on the work that I've done, whether it is fighting to, to get handcuffs off of young people in court, you know, over working to change the rules of CCAP so that men and women who have things that are dismissed can be able to move forward, working with our law enforcement officers to be proactive in our community so that the young people in our community actually have a future, so that, you know, 85% of our young people in Dane County don't come back. You know, we've seen a 45% reduction in juvenile car theft referrals, and we went down from four judges to three because we realized that if we work together in community, then we can give very different outcomes. I'm a very different judge because I come off the bench. I see, my, I see the role on the bench, but I recognize that justice is not just what I administer in my decision. Justice is making sure the entire system, whether they are, whoever they are, are treated that. And I think that Brian Stevens has said the true measure of our society is not how you treat the rich or the favored. It's how you treat the poor, the, discon uh, the condemned, and the oppressed in your community. And that's what I think my role is, and that's what makes me different from the other opponents. Do you think, is there any nuance between differences between you and the other liberal candidate, in this case, Judge Protasiewicz? 
I think, again, I think it's about, you know, leadership. We both may have similar profiles on the surface, but I think when you look a little bit deeper into our work, I have chosen to use the bench as a place to make sure that we are creating a just and fair system. So it's not, you know, simply about being a prosecutor who've locked up people. It is also understanding that I've saved futures, that we've saved our community, made them better because we have the ability to work in community in ways others may not. And I think that's the nuance difference is the leadership that I continue to have provided in our community and continue to provide. If you're elected, you will be the first person of color elected to the state Supreme Court. What do you say to voters about the importance of that? And is that a reason that someone should vote for you? I think, you know, first I want to just give love to Justice Lewis Butler, who was the first person who was appointed and lost his, you know, lost his election because of, uh, of the racist. I think it was really the first time in our history that we saw these racist attacks coming against an African-American candidate for judicial role. I would say the reason what is important is not, you don't vote just because a person's skin color. I think we, we had a place where he said, you know, Dr. King said we should be judged not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. But I will say that voters should be aware of the idea that just because it hasn't been done before, you know, like Mandela Barnes, I hear this a lot, you know, Mandela didn't win, so can a black man win statewide election? I hear that argument over and over again. And I remind the voters who at least are inclined in this direction that this state overwhelmingly elected Obama twice. So it's not that this state is racist. It's not that this state is mean. That's not my experience throughout this state. And what I have seen throughout traveling throughout this state, especially as a black man who's running solo around this, but no security with just my wife and I at times, that's not what that is not the narrative of Wisconsin. And it frustrates me to a great deal that that is a narrative that so many people are saying about our state. Our state is not racist. They've been open and honest and ready for this conversation. I've been welcomed into homes and to coffee shops and to barns to have a conversation about what fairness and justice looks like. And that is the narrative that I think we need to say. And I don't think that they're going to vote for me just because I'm black. They're going to vote for me because I have a story that connects with Wisconsinites, a story of fighting, a story of humility, a story of loving people, even when they don't look like me or come from the places I come. And I think that is the story that will allow for me to be able to win and be able to support our entire state. Is there anything that's been reported or said about you in the media that you would like to clarify or respond to? You know, obviously, you know, my opponents, you know, looked in my divorce, but, you know, it's, a, it's really a story about what we do as a community. I had my ex-wife's sister, Morgan, was killed by a drunk driver, and my ex-wife tragically had a mental health uh, episode that she didn't come back from. And my job was to stand up and be a father to my daughter, and I did. And I raised a beautiful 17-year-old daughter who's in college and, you know, was a primary caretaker of her, you know, even doing law school, changing diapers, you know, braiding hair, you know, doing daycare, working full-time, finishing law school, even in three years. And that's what we, that's the narrative we want in our community. We always say that personal responsibility and families is a thing we want. And so I actually stood up, became a black father, raised a beautiful black daughter, and brought a beautiful soul into our world and protected her while her mother was still getting healing. You know, just because she was able to say a whole bunch of things, we were able to stand in love and, you know, and give my daughter a fair chance and a wonderful chance to be successful in this world, and she is. There have been various endorsements uh, across the, this race. Is there any one endorsement that you have that you believe is key to how people should think about you? It's a key endorsement. I think there are a couple of them that really touched my heart. 
and it's a balance between both, right? I, I, I really admire Justice Butler because his endorsement was important to me because he did it before and he knew what it, he knew the pain and the struggle and the heartache of what it took, right, to go through that process. And then probably the second one is the one I got from Miss, uh, from Miss Ida. Unfortunately, Miss Ida just passed, but Miss Ida was someone who I worked in the community when I was doing restorative justice programs. And she was so proud to be able to say, you know, I saw you when you first started. So good to see you doing your work. And it's that balance of it, right? It's not just having a whole bunch of political people, but it's also making sure that I have everyday Wisconsinites who, whose hearts beat with a sense of pride to see me doing this because they want to make sure that I, our community, our state, is given a choice. This past fall, midterm elections broke records in campaign spending. This race is already expected to set some records for campaign spending, particularly from outside sources. Uh, what do you think about the level of outside spending and influence that is, and the attention on this race? I think it should be rightly given the attention it needs. But I'll, quite honestly, I think judicial races are not given the attention they need in general. So whether we're talking about municipal or circuit court judges, appellate court judges, I like the idea that people are paying attention. And the money's not a problem. Well, the money is all, well, the money becomes a problem because, you know, you're asking us to be nonpartisan, but we got then got to raise all this money. Right. So it's not it's not really consistent with the priorities that we have. If we really are concerned about removing partisanship out of this whole process to make sure that big donors don't have influence over the people that we elect, then we need to ensure a different system that either, you know, limits the amount of money candidates need to raise. And then once you hit that cap, then you're off. So you can just keep it equal among others, you know, starting off equal, allowing people to just have some kind of equal balance because, you know, it favors those who have money. It favors those who have income. It favors those who have connections or who have some kind of party affiliation. When you want good people, you have to make sure that you are able to create a system that allows good people to be in the process. And so they're not overshadowed by big money that can come in, that can dominate and take over the ability for people who don't have it to have a choice. And I like to see myself as that ground, you know, ground roots person who came from nowhere and doesn't have a lot but has a lot of heart and has a lot of attention and passion for the work that I do that I've done in this in this state for over 20 years. I tell people all the time, I wasn't born in Wisconsin, but I chose it. And I chose to bring all my talents and passion because of the values that I found here in this state reflects uh, all of the things that I hold dear to my heart and live out every day. So this is the final question. We all know this state is deeply divided politically. Uh, in polling, we see confidence in the U.S. Supreme Court is at record lows, particularly over the last year. As a justice on the court, uh, what would you do to preserve and build public confidence in the court? Well, one, you have to, you have to spend time in communities. I think that the, one of the reasons why people feel that there is no you know, legitimacy is because we often spend our time with other groups and not in community, you know, making sure that we go to barns and making sure that we spend time with our educators. In fact, the other night when I was spending time one of the you know, with some teachers out in, in Milwaukee, one of the things that the, uh, one of the teachers said she loved about Justice Abrahamson, she said, we ought to bring back courts and classrooms because during that time, courts and the classroom worked together. And you got to think about that. that was a good time in our history where people respected the courts itself because they were, you know, we, they were everywhere, you know, spending time with every type of group, 
every type of community. Our tribal judges want to have more contact and deep relationships with the courts. So there's so many opportunities that we can use to spend our time. I say to voters that when you elect me, yes, I'm going to spend time informing and supporting our judges so they get the information that they need. They have the resources necessary to make good decisions. But then I'm going to take some time to go to 53206. And I'm going to those high schools in 53206, which is, for your vote, for your listeners, is the most incarcerated zip code in our entire state. And I'm going to bring a justice to them to say, this is not who we have to be. Right? And I'm coming to you. I'm making sure that you understand who we are. And, and we're going to spend time in these high schools, just like I do here in Dane County. Because the first time that they see a justice should not be when they're in front of one. So I'm going to go to the schools, and I'm going to remind them that this is who we are. My favorite motto by the 100 Black Men is this idea that, you know, what they see is what they will be. And it's time for our state to see something different so it can be different. Well, thank you, Judge Everett Mitchell, running for state Supreme Court. Good luck. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Bye-bye, Wisconsin. (laughs) For our viewers, remember the spring primary, Tuesday, February 21st, general election, Tuesday, April 4th. Thank you for watching Newsmakers. This program is a production of Wisconsin Eye, an independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit media network with a mission to inform, educate, and engage the citizens of Wisconsin. Wisconsin Eye is the nation's first and only independently funded state civics broadcast network, providing gavel to gavel access to government proceedings and events at the state capitol. 